All right, as you grab your Bible, you can turn to Titus 3, Titus 3 tonight, and kind of a continuation where we were at last week. Let me remind you that God has given you memory. Think about that. God has given you memory. And He has a purpose for your memory. What is the purpose ultimately for memory? It's so that you remember Him and what He has done. And also, we saw last week that you remember you as well. And why God had to do what He did. And that results in praise. Your memory, even in sin, has a purpose from God. Let's read our passage. We're in Titus 3. Titus 3, 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage that takes us to a surprising place and perhaps for some here takes us to a place that we didn't think we should go. And that is to the depths of our sin. But you take us here through your word so that you may reform and redeem us and remind us of your great work to us and change those bad memories into milestones of your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and your affection. And I pray for every student here. I pray for the student that has horrible things that they can remember even in their life. I pray that you, through your spirit and through your kindness and through your affection, even tonight, through the truths of your gospel, would make that memory, which is such a millstone now, a milestone of your goodness. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, just to remind you, we talked about how bad memories can be useful. Bad memories can be useful. 
And you remember what I said about usefulness, right? They're, uh, they're valuable. Bad memories are valuable. They, they can produce in you humility. They can produce in you thanksgiving. And they can also produce in you a, a usefulness, right? And this is, this is what Paul has, is kind of aiming at here, right? He, he wants to remind these Christians of what they are to do, these, these things that they are to do to, to unbelievers in their midst and in difficult relationships that they are in with, with governors or with people that are maybe slandering them. They're not to slander back, right? He uses the motivation of their past to encourage them in how they should respond to even difficult outsider uh, relationships. Remember, Titus can be broken down in one, in three ways. You know, uh, chapter one is godliness that is necessary over the church. Chapter two is godliness that is necessary inside the church. And now we're in chapter three, godliness that is necessary uh, to be demonstrating outside the church to unbelievers. And that's what this is. And, and we're motivated by our past. We're motivated by chapter, uh, verse three, our bad memories of our past even. And tonight we're going to kind of shift it a little bit. Last, last week, bad memories are useful. But, but this week, I, I want to talk to you tonight about how God can redeem your bad memories. How he does it. He does it through the truth of the gospel. And, and tonight we're going to talk about this. Bad memories can only be useful through your active faith in the gospel. Bad memories are only useful to God. Uh, bad memories will only do you benefit in humility, in love for God, and thanksgiving to God if you are active in how you think about those memories. You don't rely on your feelings to interpret those memories. You don't rely on the world's truths to interpret those memories. You need to rely on the authoritative, true Word of God to interpret your past for you. And when you are active with your memories, you redeem your memories, and they are useful. Bad memories can only be useful through your active faith in the Gospel. You have to take active initiative with your memories and how you think about them. Or to say it another way, your understanding of the gospel will change the way you think about you. And when your understanding of yourself changes, that will change the way you live. Your understanding of the gospel will change the way you think about you and your past, and the way you think about you and your past will change the way you live. Remember, the, the whole context here is remind, remember, remember, right? We are to remember these things, and we are to remember these truths about us. We are, remem- we are to remember to show godliness before outsiders, particularly in hard relationships. It's important to remember also why you remember, and this is a review once again. It's, it's, you, you remember these things about your past, not to remind yourself of how, uh, how much better you are than these people uh, outside the church who aren't Christians, but you remind yourself of your past so that you can say in your heart, I was exactly the same way. That's why you remind these things. This is why you remember these things. And tonight, once again, I want to just look at a way to, to help you. 
to think about your past in context. God wants you, once again, to think about your past actively through the truth of God's word and through the gospel. We are going to learn about the gospel tonight. We're going, we're going to look at the gospel in such a way that will shape your view of you and help you reinterpret even your past that you feel guilty about so that you can be useful. And the, the basic question I want to answer tonight is, how did your good works contribute to your salvation? How did your works contribute to your salvation? So we're going to look at a series of contrasts, and we're just going to look at a series of contrasts that reveal the truth of the gospel. Contrast number one, truth number one about your salvation. Number one, your salvation depends on God's initiative and not yours. That's what we see in God's Word. That's what you see in God's Word. Your salvation depends on God's initiative. God's the one that started it. It began in God. It didn't begin in you. It began in God. This is important for you to remember as you think about you and your past. Our, ad- our attitude toward the difficult people in our life needs to take one big, long look at how God initiated our salvation. If you have a of a difficult person in your life, an unbeliever or a believer, someone that you struggle to relate to, you need to take a big, long look at how God revealed himself to you and when God did that. How, how did God appear to you? Look at verse 3 once again. We ourselves were ongoing, uh, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. That is who we were. And remember, I, I said last week, notice Paul adds himself in this. Why? Because the closer he gets to know the true righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, the more he sees the true nature of his sin. Yeah, he wasn't that rebel on the street trying to overthrow maybe the Roman government, but he was a rebel against God in his heart. And that was revealed to him on the road to Damascus, right? Uh, Here you are in verse 3, continuing in rebellion and foolishness, in slavery, and we even talked about last week how this was normal to you. This was the way you spent your life because sin enslaves you from within, from your lusts, from your passions, right? You were liking it. This, this was what was in your heart. This is who you were when God worked. You were in sin. You were dead. You were lost. And then look at how God appears to sinners. Notice the way God is described in appearing. Verse 4, when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Notice, he emphasizes the attitude in which God is moved. He emphasizes the attitudes that characterize the initiative purposes of God in salvation. Uh, the kindness and affection are seen as the subjects, the dual subjects of this verb. It is kindness appearing. It is affection appearing. God is so characterized by these two qualities that Paul can describe him 
Describe them as the, the subjects that are working. This is God. He is in kindness and affection moving. What do, we look, what do we learn about the attitude of God in initiating salvation? Let's just look at these two words really quick. Notice he took initiative in kindness. Kindness, this is the heart of God which is good and generous instead of cold, distant, and stingy. That's what kindness is. It is a generousness of the heart. It is a bountifulness of the spirit towards someone. It is not distant. It is not cold. It is not stingy with its gifts, but it is eager to give. And notice once again that the contrast here is between us and this God. God, we have a, we have a God here that is kind in his dealing, bountiful, generous, and we are spending our days in foolishness, rebellion, and slavery to sin. This is how God's salvation started on full display, his kindness. And and did you know that God's kindness in our life never stops either? Never stops. Our whole life, our whole life is marked by God's bounty, by God's generosity, by by all of these things. Turn over in your Bible to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we were dead in our sin. We, had, we are spiritually dead. We, we had no way to come to God. And then it contrasts God's actions as verse 4, being rich in mercy, filled with great love with which he loved us. And now he is continually seeking to demonstrate his grace. It says this in Ephesians 2, 7, in the coming ages, he, uh, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what God is going to do from now into eternity. Or to think about it in a very interesting way, it will take God forever to fully demonstrate all of the generosity of his kindness. It will take God both this age and the age to come to showcase all of his kindness. And that is the God that comes to you and takes initiative in salvation. God says, there is a lost individual. I am going to be generous with them. He took initiative in kindness. Notice also, he takes initiative in affection as well. This is a familiar term to you. Uh, The word is actually where we get uh, philanthropy, uh, philanthropia. Uh, It's it's the the word that refers to affection or love for humanity. A very interesting word to put um, in in God's hands and to describe God with. This is a, a love and affection for other humans. Normally, it refers to this inner compassion, this inner compulsion, this inner concern for other people. It's a word for affections, for feelings, and so on. It, it's it's a word that you would you would you would you would experience in your inner being when you're you know watching TV and you see one of those articles or you see one of those news news articles for for a person that is suffering somewhere and your heart goes out to them why not because you know them but because they are a human and you feel compassion for them that is what this is and God demonstrates this to us primarily in the incarnation right Christ comes puts on human flesh and has compassion but this all begins in the affection of God 
God's kindness and God's affection are on display. It is God's kindness and affection that leads him to send his one and only son. This is God the Father on display here. All three members of the Trinity are actually seen in these verses. So whenever we see God by himself, God not described as any other way, we interpret this to mean God the Father. That is what's going on here. God the Father is taking initiative. God the Father has affection. God the Father has chosen some for love, and he feels affection for them, and he displays kindness towards them. This leads you, of course, to ask a practical question of yourself. If this is how my salvation began, not because of my affections for God, not because of my generosity on display before God, but if my salvation totally began while I was lost and it totally was displayed in God's kindness and God's affection, how is God towards me now that I am in Christ? If this is how it began, how much more can I count on these things when I am in sin, when I am shamed, when I feel guilty? How much more is God already there in kindness and affection waiting for me to come? This whole, this whole section really is just soaked drenched in the attributes of God and his kindness. Notice, notice he, is, he is full of kindness and affection in the initiation. He is full of mercy in verse 5, and he does this by his grace in verse 7. This is God's attributes on display. The gospel message in our hopelessness is one that presents and praises our God for all of his glory in saving us. Some ask, why does God allow sin to happen? Why does, why does God allow evil to happen? Why does God allow rebellion to happen against him? And that's a question for the wisdom of God, I'm sure. But we get maybe a hint, maybe just a hint of an answer right here, don't we? God allows evil to happen to some degree in order to show off these attributes of him of kindness, of mercy, of affection, of grace. That's what we see in in Romans 9, right? God has done this. God has ordained this. God has sovereignly allowed all of this to happen in order to demonstrate His kindness in mercy. And God takes the beginning, the initiative of this. That is the beginning of your salvation. That's truth number one about your salvation. It depends. It depends on God's initiative, not you. Um, Second truth about your salvation that we learn from this passage is uh, your salvation depends on God's mercy, not your works. Now, here's here's a truth that I would love for you to truly know. Remember where we've been, right? Verse 3. We've just reminded, we've just been reminded about what works we bring to salvation, haven't we? Right? We brought foolishness, we brought disobedience, we brought, we brought uh, deception, we brought enslavement, we brought, we brought happiness in the way we spent our life in envy and hatred. That's what we bring to our salvation. That's, those are the works that we contribute to our salvation. But what does God do? 
What, what works does God display in contrast to ours? Well, verse 5 is the main verb of this entire section that we just read, right? This is the main verb. This is the thing that Paul really wants you to know. He saved us. He saved us. We did not save ourselves by anything we have done. No, God himself saved us. Your salvation isn't about your works, but it's about God and his works. And primarily it's about his mercy. It's a showcase of God's mercy. Now, some may say, God must choose to save some because of some reason he finds in them. Some ability he sees in them. Some potential he sees in them that can be useful for his purpose. Maybe he sees in the future that they are going to believe in him. And he says, I'm going to pick those to say. That's not the picture we get at all here. Uh, The picture uh, we get here is that God seems to choose the ones who have the least to offer to him. In order to do what? To demonstrate his Mercy. Notice what he says there in verse 5. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God chooses to save some, I've said it before, specifically because they are so sinful. You want to know why God saves you? It's because you are the greatest Opportunity to display the mercy and grace and kindness of God. You are a great example of a sinner. And you are meant, you are saved to display God's mercy according to his own mercy. God looks at you and says, there's one. There is one that will demonstrate the length of my mercy. It's it's well said by someone. The only thing you bring to salvation is your sin. The only thing you bring to salvation is sin. Mercy here is one of my favorite words. It's the motive to act in kindness towards someone precisely because they are so pitiful pitiful and miserable. And and the idea is God God doesn't save, doesn't have to save anyone. And that's what mercy is. God saves us. According to mercy, God is kind to people, even when he didn't have to be kind. That's what mercy is. He should have. He could have left you in your sin. He could have judged you in your sin. But instead, he chose to have mercy instead of judging you. The only works you bring are works that condemn you. And the only thing you contribute to your salvation is a great example of God's mercy. Mercy is what characterizes all that Jesus has done for us. It's not about what you do. It's about who you hold to in your sin. God is rich in mercy, it tells us in Ephesians 4. And that is the God that we hold to. And that is the truth of salvation. It depends not on your works, but on God's mercy. Let's look at a a third truth, a truth about your salvation. It depends on God's will, not yours. Are you beginning to sense that Paul is trying to motivate them to love and good deeds by humility? Yes, 
Paul is taking everything away from you that would give you pride in order that you can serve God with a humble and joyful and thankful heart. Exactly what we were talking about last week. And notice it's through memories. But here, let's look at this. It depends on God's will, not yours. Now, just a big view here. Notice, God, uh, Paul describes the totality of salvation. He goes into many of the different aspects. He looks at God's motives and his initiative and his coming. He looks at the work of Christ a little bit in verse 6. He looks at our justification, our present righteousness before God in verse 7. He even looks at our future hope. And he kind of moves through all of these in such a way as to strip us of our pride and cause us to rejoice in his grace and to say, we are an example of his mercy and his kindness and his affection and nothing else. But notice how much time Paul now takes on this doctrine that we believe in called regeneration. He spends more time on this than any other one. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 5. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is he talking about there? He is talking about the work of the Spirit to change you from within and cause you to see the gospel and rejoice in the gospel. He is talking about the work of the Spirit in changing your will. And causing you to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. There's two expressions of the Spirit's work here. Like I say, Paul, Paul is emphasizing this because he really wants to strip all pride. First you see the washing of regeneration. This is restoring something to an original state. It's original created purpose. Uh, you, could, you could think about how washing a car or taking a shower makes you look fresh and new to some, to some in some cases. In other cases, oh, that looks worse. Get mud back on that car. Right? That is what washing does. It, it restores you to uh, an original position. Uh, regeneration is this wonderful doctrine about how God is the one who acts through the Holy Spirit inside your heart, causing you to, to kind of see the glory, its truth of the gospel, and believe and obey. You could think of it like this. Uh, on your windshield is a bunch of mud and you cannot see the thing that's in front of you. But God in his grace removes the windshield, makes it good as new so it can be used for its original purpose to see what's in front of you. When you see the gospel with hearts that have been made new, you will naturally, with a new heart, naturally love the gospel, delight in the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, believe the gospel, turn from your sin and be saved. But that requires God's Spirit to be inside of you and to change you. Some, some places in the New Testament, this is referred to as being born again. Being born again. It's like, it's like I never saw these things before. It's like I, I'm, I'm seeing for the first time. It's like I'm breathing for the first time. Suddenly, I see all of God's grace and His kindness and His affection and His mercy towards me. I never had ears or eyes to see it before. I am a new creation. It's talked about other, in other places as being risen with Christ. I was dead. I was dead, completely buried in the ground, and I have been risen with Christ, and now I am alive. And I can see the goodness of the gospel. 
It's talked about being made a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians 5, right? I'm a new person. I am transformed from with the with, within. And I cannot live the same way. I see the world now differently. I see the world in the context of the gospel. I see my past in the context of the gospel. I see my present in the context of the gospel. And I see my future, even my future, in the glorious context of the gospel. This comes through the washing of regeneration. And this comes from the renewal of the spirit. You have a new heart. You have transformation. And notice once then, just to hammer it home again, what is the source of this Washing. What is the source of this renewal? It's not of you. It's of the Holy Spirit. It's of regeneration. Even when you hear the gospel, even, even when you believe the gospel, even when you rejoice in the gospel, you are experiencing the kindness, the affection, the mercy, and the grace of God. Because that of itself is kindness. That is God acting when you were worthless. That is God acting in mercy when you should have been left behind. You are experiencing the kindness of God. And that's just a reminder, right? That the truth you believe will shape the way you think of your past. And the the way you think about your past will shape the way you think about your present, and the way you think about your present will shape the way you think of your future. It'll make you useful or useless, all depending on the truth that you use. God's Word says, this is true about you. This is what had to happen in you for you to turn to the Gospel and be saved. Final truth about your salvation It depends on God's purposes and not yours. It depends on God's purposes, not yours. Verse 7. Notice Paul, you can't just jump on verse 7. This is what's going on here. Paul, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul gives these commands, remember this, and then in verse 3 he gives this 4. Now he's going to give a basis for why for why we should behave a certain way, why we should behave with obedience, with submission, without slander or peaceable. And he first reminds us, right, of the, sal- of the salvation that we enjoy in the gospel, right? We were lost in hopeless night, thought we knew the way, thought we knew the path that promised joy in life, but in truth, it was leading us to the grave. We had no hope. And God, to his praise, saved us. Not by our works, but according to his mercy, which he poured out on us. And now in verse 7, notice, there's a so that there. This is the purpose for which God has saved sinners. This is the purpose for which he has has shown all of this kindness and this affection and and, and measured this mercy and, and used this grace so that these two things might happen. Number one, that you may be justified. And number two, that you may have hope for eternal life. Let's let's break that down really quick. So that you might presently stand under God's declaration. That's what it means to be justified. You are presently standing under an authoritative declaration from the courts of heaven. This individual is righteous as Christ is righteous. 
You are justified by grace, it says here. You are declared righteous. And notice, this is not, this is not at the long end of a sanctification process in your life. God doesn't justify you somewhere in the future when you've done all these good things and, and finally made yourself acceptable before God. No, that's not when God justifies you. God justifies you while you are still a sinner. We, we see that right here, right? We are presently justified. You could also look over at 1 Corinthians 6, which says in, in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, or idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11 he says, Such were some of you, but then something happened. What happened? You were washed. That's the Holy Spirit. You were sanctified. That's the Holy Spirit. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You were declared righteous even then in the Spirit of God was also regenerating you from within. You were declared righteous. And this, of course, comes to us through a free gift. We see this in Romans, right? That God gives us this righteousness in Christ, which is free. Look at one verse over there in Romans 3.24. We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is what we are permanently presently standing in. We are standing in God's declaration. I am seeing you in the righteousness of Christ. That is why God moved in affection and in kindness and showed his mercy. This is what the Spirit of God opens up your heart to see, that you have been justified, you've been declared righteous. You are presently standing in absolute 100% assurance before God in the righteousness of Christ and not your own. And because of this, as a result of this, you also, as it says back in Titus 3, So that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You don't go to heaven on your own righteousness. You don't go to heaven on your own works. The purpose for which Christ died, the purpose for which God has appeared in affection and kindness are to save you. And you cannot do this on your own. You must do this in Christ's righteousness And only then can God's purpose be fulfilled. You become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at that. Look at verse 7 as a a present statement. You are presently declared righteous before God, and you are presently holding on to a hope of eternal life. This is God's purpose. This is God's purpose in your salvation. Why do you need to remember these things? Why do you need to remember these things? Why do you need to think about your past in the context of the gospel? Well, there's a few reasons. When you put your whole life in the context of the gospel, I'm just going to list three things. Probably you could think of more. Uh, Three things that will result in your life. Number one, you will redeem even the most heinous sins in your life and not not necessarily in in making them go away but you will see the 
the purpose, the God-glorifying purpose in them? You will say, yes, every time I walk down that street, I remember. But thanks be to God that that street is there. Because every time I walk down that street, I am reminded of God's mercy and grace and affection and kindness. You can be almost thankful for bad memories because they remind you of your good Savior in a way. Because every time you think, every time your, your, your sins come up to greet you and remind you of themselves, you can say, yes, and for that I have been redeemed. But another result when you put your whole life in the context of the gospel like this, you also think about your good works differently too, don't you? Notice, that's a really weird approach on Paul's part in motivating good works. Remember, that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to motivate them to love and good deeds. And how does he do it? You did nothing for your salvation. How does that work? Well, this is, what, this is how it works. When you put your whole life in the context of the gospel, you highlight, you highlight how every good work you do is nothing but a mercy from God. It's a mercy from God. It is an opportunity to enjoy and praise God for His mercy. Not to demonstrate your goodness, but to lift up and demonstrate and showcase the goodness of God. When you put your whole life in the context of the gospel, good works are not for you, they're for God, and they're from God, and they result in His praise. And when you put your whole life in the context of the gospel, finally, I would say this, you, you focus and you sharpen a right attitude and an obedience in the, front, in, the, in the present. Good works are motivated. True God-honoring works are motivated by remembering how little your works contributed to your salvation. Notice how Paul ends it in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. It is good and profitable for you to be reminded of your past because that gives you an opportunity to be reminded of the great grace of your God. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening and we pray that this time in small group would be beneficial and and glorifying to you. We thank you for Christ and his grace. We thank you that we can even go into these bad things and these horrible memories if we have them and be thankful for them. And we pray that we can be more and more humbled by the truth of your gospel through this passage. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.